Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I am here in New York City. Uh, It is our end-of-the-week podcast, and so I am joined, as always, by... Ryan Goodman of Just Security and NYU Law School. How are you doing, Ryan? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to come back to that. And we are joined <laughs> by one of our uh, founding regulars from Washington, D.C., Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? I'm doing well, surprisingly. Uh, yeah, that is surprising. And from a far coast, a, a first-time guest here, Dr. Seema Yasmin, who is a public health physician and former officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Welcome, Seema. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're we're glad to have you here. You probably don't know this because you are. I, I know that you've taught journalism, uh, dealing with issues like communications and and public health. You probably don't know that. Um, I'm, I'm actually a secret colleague of yours because oh, a I long, did not know. No, you didn't know. But I, a long time ago, uh, 2004, I wrote an article for the Washington Post in which I, um, without much thinking, I'll admit it, invented a term uh, in, in, uh, following the SARS epidemic, which was infodemic. And so the, was the that point. You? I've had many people claim this, though. We no. have to fact check. No fact checked. Fact. Let's let's Snopes that right up because that was me, and um, and uh, of course one of the things that you know the point that I was making back around SARS was that SARS was a disease of limited impact, but the 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 consequences of the misinformation about the disease and the consequences of the economic reaction to the to to the epidemic. Um, in, in many respects, were greater than the underlying disease. And so public health officials had an equal responsibility to manage both the epidemic and the infodemic. And well, this it, is exactly why I went into journalism, because when I was working as an epidemic intelligence service officer, I would get sent into all these different hot zones to investigate an epidemic and stop the spread of disease. And I noticed every single time that disease was not the only thing that was spreading. There was a contagion that was emotional and there was definitely misinformation, rumors, health hoaxes, pseudoscience, all of that stuff spreading. And I was very frustrated that as a public health physician, I was being told just focus on the disease as if that was spreading in isolation. It was really important. I also tended to people's rumors and beliefs and I'm glad that you say you coined that term because now the World Health Organization is starting to use the term infodemic a little bit, but I'm very frustrated with them that they haven't 
tackled the information ecosystem problem as much as they target diseases because one fuels the other. You noticed, but Ryan and and Ed, that sh- she said, "I'm glad you claim you invented this term." <laughs> now this whole show is. I'm a journalist. I'm very skeptical. Yeah. Well, the Washington. I can attest that David is sort of fairly widely cited as as coining that neologism. He's it's it's fairly. I, I will be sure um, to check that out. Check that yeah, out. Yeah, check. There was a Wall Street Journal article about two weeks about it that said that, and the art the article was in the Washington Post. It was called "When the Buzz Bites Back" in 2004. In any event, I'm you know I'm not defensive about this in the slightest, um, but I do, but I do want to get to the the underlying or the the overarching point here, which is that you know we are in the midst of a, a pandemic that may be. Um, uh, you know, the the, the most significant public health challenge of that kind in in 100 years. But we are facing something associated with that pandemic that is, you know, complicating it and compounding it and is, in fact, leading to disease, the spread of the pandemic, and death. And and that is public health or, or senior public officials who are deliberately misleading us. And this began with the Chinese, but now the number one you know, wrongdoer in this regard is the president of the United States who regularly gets up and says, this is nothing, it's going to go away, or try, you know, we're going to have a cure any minute now, or we've got to open up the society. And it's actually gotten us into the point in the United States where there's a political divide between blue states and red states, where the political leaders in red states are saying, this isn't really a thing, not as bad as the flu. Rudy Giuliani was tweeting last night about more people being killed in car accidents and so forth. Um, and, and, and we've gotten to a point where there's a political divide over reality and, and, and lies. And that, I, I, I assume, Seema, is, is, is a source of great danger, in your view. Absolutely. And that's why I say that when disease spreads in tandem with misinformation and disinformation about the disease, it really can fuel epidemics. It's how you end up in a situation now where I feel like I'm having conversations with people that live on two different planets. I talk to my physician colleagues and they are in the thick of it. They are so worried about the influx of patients, not having the basic supplies in order to do their job and stay safe while doing so. Then the other conversations I have are with people in the general public who say to me, so Dr. Yasmin, should I be worried about this thing? And it's just a flu, right? And I think, oh my goodness, we have ended up with this disconnect because from the top down, we've heard so many myths and hoaxes circulated about this. We know during a public health crisis that even the good information can overwhelm people. There's just so much circulating that folks struggle to know what to believe and exactly which bit they should hold on to. So it's critical that we have a playbook by which we communicate during a global health crisis. We have that playbook. It doesn't really feel like people are paying attention to it. Well, Ryan, I mean, if we go a step further, you know, uh, you know, the president's responsible for, according to one count, 18,000 lies. And we've been living every day with a certain number of, of lies. And, you know, they, they kind of roll off our back now, you know, and we sort of go, well, you know, it's a lie. You know, it's, what's the big deal? But at this point, when a government says to people, OK, it's OK to go back out. It's OK to go to work. It's not um, a bad disease when they say this thing that... Um, uh, 
you know, is 10 times as virulent as the flu is not as bad as, as, or is just the same as the flu or, or they say this cure could help you. And then somebody goes out and takes something out of his fish tank that he was using uh, to treat the water for his koi and, and takes it and dies. You know, this is coming, this is coming from the top. But one of the things that you and I have talked about is that this is an administration where challenging the president or offering an alternative view or trying to put the truth out there will get you fired. And, and, and so these lies are the riskiest lies, are they not? I think that's right. So on both counts, um, one that it used to be said by Trump supporters that don't listen to what he says, it's the policies that count. But here, the messaging is so critically important. It's life or death for um, hundreds of thousands. It might end up being millions of people um, or over a million people. And it's exactly what you said. It's, it's telling people not to worry about it, to, uh, to go to work or um, uh, we shake hands because that's what we do in our business. Da, 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 da. So the, the public messaging being so vital around the ways in which we all have to band together and protect um, each other in the country uh, from the pandemic is uh, one of the most important things besides other things like policies on delivery of uh, personal um, protective equipment and uh, ventilators and things like that and utilizing the powers of the federal government to do that is also the public messaging. So I think that's critical. And then the other part that you mentioned, David, I think is really significant, which is it's not just about the lies and a lie would be that the person knowingly is giving um, false information, but included in that is that there's a part of it that I think even Trump himself is so delusional and didn't want to bring himself around to believing certain things. And then the people within the government um, or his advisors outside of the government don't want to disabuse him of that and instead want to protect protect themselves from not um, doing anything, but instead reinforcing his views. And there's a piece that's in the last 24 hours in Politico titled Trump's Mismanagement helped fuel coronavirus crisis, interviewing 13 current and former officials about his handling of the crisis in just exactly these terms. And Maggie Haberman in the New York Times has uh, also described it in very similar terms of how people did not want to do anything but reinforce him and his views. And then he turns on Fox News and they're sycophantically reinforcing the view that this is just like the, the flu. So then he's even more encouraged to pursue it further, and that has ended up uh, putting at risk over a million uh, lives in the United States. Yeah, so uh, uh, let, me, let me pick up on that with you, Ed. You know, you had a really good column in the Financial Times today on, you know, how this is a kind of different kind of American exceptionalism and a dangerous kind of American exceptionalism. Uh, we are not only... Um, saying we don't have to play by the rules of the rest of the world and we're sort of thumbing our nose at the international system and, you know, the, thumbed our nose at the World Health Organization and, and, and Trump used the occasion of this to attack China, attack our allies and so forth. But in some respects, you know, just taking the thesis of your article and going a step further and picking up on what Seema and Ryan are talking about, the, the the problem here is American exceptionalism where we're saying the laws of nature don't apply to us because we're American. Science doesn't apply. 
you know, that's that seems to be taking the idea to its most dangerous extreme. Yeah, and I think you know, if if you're if you're talking about science, um, you know, I'm not a scientist and I'm not a science journalist, but the overlap um, between those who are um, echoing and magnifying um, Trump's doubts um, about the science of social distancing and so forth are pretty much um, an exact fit with the climate change skeptics. So, you know, there is a very strong American um, anti-science skepticism in public life that is just more important and more damaging to the world because it's America, but it's also larger than you find in most democracies. There, there are there are people like Bolsonaro in, in Brazil who are as bad or worse, but it's Brazil. Um, so it, it has um, less consequence for the world. Um, I think, I mean, the, 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 the two exceptionalisms, negative exceptionalisms that I was trying to focus on today was, one, you've got a divided government in America. Um, I don't mean um, between Congress and um, the White House. I mean between states and cities and the presidency. And in most other countries, you've, you've got a unified line. That line might have changed, you know, Britain being perhaps the most um, obvious example from its flirtation with the herd immunity um, 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 path to, to going to full lockdown this week. Um, but generally speaking, most countries have governments that have got a clear policy on how to deal with this. Um, and in America, you've got mixed signals and mixed signals um, are not a good thing in an epidemic because, as you know, communicable diseases, are, you know, um, are, are spread through human contact um, and um, are, are only our strategy to defeat them is only, or to contain them is only as strong as our weakest link. And if we've got a president giving people permission to ignore the strictures, um, on social distancing, then he's he's deliberately weakening that weakest link, um, and that's and that's a, a, a terrible thing at a time like this. I note that the number of confirmed infections in America has just overtaken China um, today. Um, so America now has more infections than any other country in the world, um, and uh, Trump is Trump is encouraging. <laughs> It may be inadvertently, maybe advertently. He's encouraging the acceleration of that, which which is an extraordinary thing for the president of America to be doing. And then just the second one, very briefly, the second negative exceptionalism here is that at times like this, you expect American leadership. And we have got and received for the last 70 years in, for better or for worse, American leadership. It's America is the grand convener. Um, and we don't have that today. Uh, instead, we have a, an American administration that is seeking to, spending more effort trying to label this the China or the Wuhan virus, uh, even preventing the G7 from is issuing a statement because Mike Pompeo wanted Wuhan virus to be included in the language of that communique, um, uh, uh, rather than convening, um, convening um, governments to... Um, to tackle this problem together. And that, that's the, a, a very negative American exception. And it is thumbing its nose at the world at, 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 a, at a time that the world will not forget. And I think this is an immense act of self-harm. Hey, listeners, if you haven't already, you might want to check out and subscribe to Eurasia Group Foundation's new podcast, None of the Above. 
It offers new ideas and answers to America's most pressing foreign policy questions. Increasingly, as you know, everyday American voters feel that their preferences are not accurately reflected in Washington. They find themselves dissatisfied with the status quo. None of the above is designed to offer something different. The host, Mark Hanna, interviews global thinkers, journalists, and activists on the issues we care most about. You'll hear in-depth conversations with foreign policy luminaries like our friend Stephen Wald, as well as some less usual suspects like uh, Cal Penn or Andrew Basovich. None of the above is produced by the Eurasia Group Foundation, a nonprofit founded by Ian Bremmer and dedicated to helping people make meaning out of the impact that geopolitics has on their lives and bringing non-traditional voices into the national conversation about foreign policy and national security. So uh, give a listen to None of the Above, uh, a very interesting new podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Uh, on, so, on, so many le- on so many levels. But, you know, Seema, in, we now see where the origins of some of the, the infodemic that we're up against are. And the president's not going to disappear between now and and next January anyway. How do you control the negative aspects of the infodemic surrounding this when the potential stakes are so high and and the the, the people who are part of the problem are so powerful? Yeah, I, I'll address that, but I just want to add a point to this conversation about exceptionalism, because oftentimes that conversation can feel quite academic. And here we have an example of it playing out in a way that was very real and very troubling. So if you remember back in early February, around the 5th of February, the federal government CDC scientists sent out testing kits to a few labs across the U.S. in order for them to be able to test patients who may have COVID-19. And that test ended up being faulty. It didn't work. There were all sorts of issues with it. And at the time, I thought, well, that's strange because CDC is really technically advanced when it comes to diagnostics. It's often first, you know, we saw that with Ebola. We saw it with H1N1. But I also thought this is an emergency. This happens. It's okay. You go back to the drawing board. But the problem at that point was The World Health Organization had already sent tens of thousands of testing kits to a few dozen countries around the world. Now, with American regulation being the way it was, academic scientists across the states had their hands tied. And so they were only reliant on the CDC kit, and that had been faulty. So when journalists were saying to public health officials, this is an emergency. Why not just take testing kits from countries that already have ones that are functioning or take them from the World Health Organization, which has disseminated so many that work? The response from top politicians came back that we're America. We are the leader in infectious disease in the world. It's developing countries that go to the World Health Organization for help, not us. And that is not the response, the collaborative kind of response that you need that is led by science during a global health crisis. We ended up so delayed and still are far behind the testing because of that kind of hubris. So I was really disturbed by that and thinking that's exceptionalism playing out. And I say that as a British trained physician who moved to America because I could not find anywhere better to train in public health. So I say that coming from this perspective that 
America can be one of the greatest nations in terms of its public health system and its training, but that doesn't mean it's always the best. It doesn't mean it's always right. And so you have to have leaders that will defer, that will take assistance when we need it. And to your point about infodemics, it's very challenging to try and address this issue. It's why we're not seeing so many interventions to mitigate the spread of false information. And as I said, even the accurate information can overload the public and just leave people feeling overwhelmed. I'm a little bit happier that the World Health Organization is starting to even use the phrase infodemic and is acknowledging things like growing anti-science movements and growing anti-climate change movements exist. I mean, we even have flat earth organizations. I mean, that's where we are in terms of our belief in, in science and evidence. But I think we have to address it in tandem when we are battling the disease. We have to battle the concurrent spread of misinformation and disinformation. And it is doable, as challenging as it is. We can even use the same exact differential calculations to model the spread of rumors as we can to model the spread of disease. And from the field of social psychology, we can see there's a phenomenon called inoculation theory that's fascinating. It's something that I'm working on where you can almost inoculate people against myths in the same way that you inoculate against disease. So when you give someone a vaccine, you're often giving them a mini dose of the thing that could make them sick, maybe a weakened version of a virus, for example. With inoculation theory in psychology, you do the same. You're giving someone a small dose of a myth. You're giving them a heads up that this false information is coming your way. And here's all the reasons why it's inaccurate. And here's the correct information. So it's not like we don't have ways to counter false narratives. I just need to see us taking that as seriously as a global health threat as we do a virus. Brian, as you sit there locked into your apartment in Brooklyn, um, and uh, watching the president of the United States say everything's going to be fine by Easter, two weeks away, um, and the, yet the New York death toll went up 100 overnight, uh, and there's almost 40,000 people in New York with this disease. And day after day, we're getting reports of frontline physicians who are overwhelmed some of whom are becoming ill themselves, uh, and warning that the, not only is the system not going to be able to take this, but there's some fairly credible warnings out there that the that, that we're just in the earliest stages of this and that the toll may be e egregiously higher. Do you see actors in the government uh, at the state level, at the federal level, who are doing this right? who are serving the public interest here and who people should be zeroing in on as opposed to the others? I mean, it's, it, you know, it's what's, what's working in your eyes? Hmm. Um, so I do think that uh, Governor Cuomo in New York is emerging as a kind of hero in the story um, because of how, candid he is in um, his delivery of the information and the hard realities of what's happening um, in New York and uh, his efforts to focus on the issues um, and in some sense depoliticize them, um, I think has been key. So having a governor like that 
at the uh, what is turning out to be the epicenter of the coronavirus in the United States, with a lot of people under extraordinary stress around this, I think has been um, tremendous to see. Um, but at the same time, there's only so much that he can do. Um, and there are pieces of this that are just outside of the control, it looks like, of the state and local. So that as much as we might laud those people and ask them to step up, I think there's certain things that only the federal government can do. And one of them has got to be the um, medical supply chain uh, that only the federal government can really uh, grab a hold of that um, and ensure that the industries are um, getting the kind of equipment and things like that, both to save people's lives and to protect the medical staff, just as an example of it. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that's right. And, and, and um, the situation in New York is dire. You know, I, I think one of the images that to me is standing out are these images of these uh, trucks backed up into hospitals, these refrigerated trucks, which apparently are to take um, people who have died um, to the morgue and things like that. And that's um, uh, really just incredible to see that at the same time that Rudy Giuliani is telling us, oh, this is just like a flu season. Um, and uh, the president is making comparisons to car accidents, uh, where obviously what's happening is the medical system is about to fall off of a cliff. Um, and the Surgeon General, of all people, making statements that it's quote-unquote leveling off in New York, uh, hospitalizations leveling off. And um, just today, uh, Governor Cuomo announced, uh, gave the statistics, and I think it's something like a, between a 30 and a 40 percent increase in hospitalization since yesterday. So um, it's a different, you know, I think he's I think he's doing things uh, in, a, in the right way. And I'm, you know, for me, that's something that I'm watching very closely uh, because it's so proximate in certain sense. And as you as you look around, you know, one of the things that you and I have talked about on on past uh, episodes was the really astonishingly bad reaction of um, Boris Johnson and and his government. But it seemed like they did, you know, this had this ridiculous, you know, calling the herd policy or herd immunity policy. Um, and then it received such a terrible reaction, they backed off from it. They were actually able to learn a little bit. Um, I very rarely, you know, find an opportunity to give Boris Johnson credit for anything. Um, but it does seem like being able to learn from experience is, a, is you know, a positive thing. And, and we don't see so much of that here in the U.S. So I think he was forced. Um, I think he was forced to change course. Uh, and he must have seen with this Imperial uh, College report that's been so widely cited, you know, he must have he must have seen a train sort of hurtling towards him um, and, you know, felt like he was untying himself just in time. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give him too much credit. This is an act of belated self-preservation on Boris's part and the damage done in terms of wasted weeks um, of not, you know, getting proper testing, the similar problems really to wasted weeks here in America of being complacent, downplaying the threat, and not getting um, the NHS tooled up um, and uh, testing kits um, ordered, et cetera, um, th that, that will, in retrospect, you know, be 
it might well be possible to put numbers to it to to um, have metrics, as you will will be will be able to do so with Trump to say how much uh, how many how many infections did you cause, how many deaths resulted from this negligence, this period of of negligence. But that said, I agree with you. Um, it's better to to correct your mistakes earlier rather than later. And it is quite striking that, you know, the, 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 the same week that Boris Johnson gives this very good, simple four and a half minute address to the nation on Monday night, um, uh, announcing the lockdown and the reasons for the lockdown and the various conditions of the lockdown. It was a kind of a model, actually, of sort of clear public communication. It's the very week that Trump is now beginning to flirt with and openly embrace um, um, herd immunity theory. Uh, and so that's, that's sort of one of the reasons why I'm talking about the wrong kind of American exceptionalism here. Um, there are you know, other examples of other countries that are taking different paths, and Sweden right now is a very good example um, where their schools are still open and people are, are still going to work. But you can do that in places like Sweden or Singapore or Hong Kong if you've been alert early and taken it seriously early and have tabs on the numbers and know who to isolate and are competent of the statistics and therefore your testing mechanisms. The United States and Britain are very, very late to this party. And I don't find that to be coincidental. I think, you know, our politics and our systems of governance are more degraded um, than in most other democracies. And we are seeing one price of that manifest itself now. Well, you know, Seema, when Ed talks about Sweden or talks about Singapore, and we've talked about Singapore on earlier episodes of the show, um, and, and we can talk about defects in their civil society all that we want, but in these places you see governments that already have a public health system in place, uh, have a lot of respect for expertise and science, um, have social safety nets in place, are able to mobilize um, uh, mass response uh, effectively, and have go people trust them. And that, you know, unless you have those things, then you don't have the resilience to adapt as quickly as they have to these things. To, to this kind of a crisis. I'm wondering, you know, what you think of that. And then, you know, I guess the follow-on question is, here in the U.S., who do you see that's, you know, doing it right? You know, um, uh, wh what do you see that's working here? Well, speaking of Singapore, not only can we point to robust public health systems and infrastructure, but the Singaporean PM has been a model of how to communicate with the public during a time of crisis. We've seen really consistent and excellent public health messaging, the kinds of which doesn't sugarcoat the truth or offer false assurances or false hope, but really keeps people in the loop about what's happening, what might be about to happen, and what they can do in their day-to-day -day lives to, hold, to help stop the spread of transmission. So that's been fascinating to contrast with the communication from Boris Johnson, for example, who I don't think we have any reason to rush to praise him yet. I think there's been very bungled messaging there that even as he's been learning perhaps in real time and then backtracking, that can be very confusing for the public too. One day he says one thing and the next day it's a different message. I know that that was perplexing for, for many Brits. Um, 
So I really want us to pay attention to that communication aspect and think about journalism as part of the public health ecosystem. And we've seen time and time again with so many epidemics, how that infrastructure aspect plays into it. And I often say that I don't study epidemics, I study syndemics, which is the idea that you usually have one or two or three or more epidemics of something happening at the same time. So you think about the Ebola outbreak that just about ended in the DRC, but there was malaria spreading at the same time. There was also armed conflict escalating at the same time. So again, disease doesn't spread in isolation. It's usually in tandem with other things. And we saw how that left West Africa exposed and vulnerable to the biggest Ebola epidemic in history because Decades of civil conflict had decimated the public health system, had led to a brain drain where there were hardly enough Liberian physicians remaining in the country. They had to pull people out of retirement to care for those who were infected with Ebola. And then thinking back to the United States about infrastructure here and messaging and who's doing it right, I feel like, and maybe I'm biased because I live in California now, but I do think that, you know, I've been sheltering in place here since March 17, which feels like it was about three years ago. Um, <laughs> but I think we were one of the first areas in the country to be issued shelter in place orders. So it feels like California was a bit ahead of the curve with that. I'm in Santa Clara County and I think this county and five others have the first shelter in place guidance. And then soon after, it was across California. So definitely have seen some actions here that I want to see in other parts of the U.S. too. Well, I, I, I assume you want to see it for more than one reason. You know, one is that it's a good thing to do uh, and will help contain the disease. The other thing is that if they don't do it, 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 it offsets some of the benefits of, of your doing it. Because if oh, absolutely. It's like, it, yeah, it's like when you live in an apartment building and you clean your apartment really, really well. But if the, your neighbor doesn't and they have roaches and mice, then it affects everybody. And so we really need that consistency of the response. And, you know, I trained in public health here, so I have a deep appreciation for states' rights. And the fact that states have autonomy. And in fact, even when I was in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, I was stationed within a state and county health department. So I respect that states often know what to do for their residents better than the federal government might. But in a situation like this, you have to have a coordinated response. Everybody has to be at the table together having the same conversation. And it feels like we're reading from 50 different hymn books. There isn't a coordinated response. And something strange is happening at the CDC because it seems like its hands are being tied too. One of the things that CDC is really, really good at is collecting data on public health and letting us know, for example, at any given point, how many Americans across the US are infected with flu, how many Americans have died from flu. And yet we're not seeing the most accurate numbers about COVID-19 from the CDC. There was even a Monday, I think it was two Mondays ago, where data that had been on the CDC website about testing and those who had tested positive, it just disappeared. And so as a journalist, you're left with having to call 50 different states and the territories to ask them individually, how many of you tested, who's tested positive, and then you collate that data. But that's the role of the CDC, and we're just not seeing it unleashed to do its job to its full extent. Yeah, and of course, there's a consequence to that. You know, I think when Ed was referring earlier to the the U.S. hitting number one on the 
league tables in terms of the spread of the disease, uh, the number that is out there that people are talking about right now this afternoon is a number that the New York Times had to put together by reporting it. Um, it was not a number from the CDC. Uh, and of course, we know that with in the absence of testing um, and, uh, uh, you know, we don't we don't really, you know, think I mean, these numbers are not really representative of the full truth anyway. And that, of course, leads people to misassess the severity of all of this. Uh, we've only got about 10, 10 minutes left here, and I've just got a couple of different questions for each of you. And let me go to Ryan. It's a bit of a change of pace. But, you know, I have noticed, you know, that this is a you know public health crisis to a public health person, uh, but it's a national security crisis to a national security person. And it's that on several different levels. It, the, the resilience level that I was talking about, I think that's a core issue in national security. And if you don't have public health and if you don't have you know, uh, the kind of social safety nets, then these kind of crises can really you back. Um, uh, it's also a national security issue because the global, you know, health emergency response capacity existed in the NSC and was cut out of there. Uh, it, it, you know, there are some fundamental national security decisions that have been taken uh, by this administration, including, by the way, two weeks ago, recommending a reduction of of money to the CDC in the middle of this crisis. Um, but but a couple come to my mind, Ryan, that sort of fall really into your bailiwick. And, and you know, one of them is, you know, this idea that um, the Justice Department floated with the United States Congress, that it should be able to, you know, waive, you know, traditional legal processes in order to combat this disease. Uh, now, of course, the Congress has to approve it, and there were a lot of people who said over my dead body, but it was striking to me that Bill Barr had the impulse even to publicly raise this with the Congress, this idea of, you know, you know I don't know whether he's going to end up suspending habeas corpus, but it was pretty awful. And today, you know, there was also, uh, you know, word that the United States is considering deploying troops, you know, along the Canadian border, uh, I don't know what they think are coming in. It may be troops to keep Americans from going out at the rate things are going. Um, but I was just wondering if you had any thoughts or comments on either of those developments. Sure. Um, so we've had a couple pieces on just security, which are somewhat framed as the international human rights system and looking for ways in which various governments might make, might make power grabs because we are in a state of emergency and in states of emergency, that's what especially autocratic governments try to do. And so I think it's unsurprising at a certain level that that's what Bill Barr might do in this moment. Um, and uh, it was so shocking that we even had, you know, one of the people that uh, said over my dead body was, you know, Republican Senator Mike Lee from Utah saying, no way are we going to let this go forward. And the Justice Department then issued a statement as to um, try to explain what they did and the statement didn't even really say anything different. It just was basically saying, "Oh well, Congress asked us what powers do we want, <laughs> and here's one we we wanted to we we you know here's on our, our wish list." Um, so I think we're heading down a dangerous path. I, I do think the the one piece of it that to me was a little bit more optimistic and refreshing, if there's something to it, which is that in a certain sense, Bill Barr has been so delegitimized by. Um, 
thorough reporting and analysis that the fact that it came out of his Justice Department meant that um, I think he didn't have a kind of a benefit of the doubt. And I thought that was something maybe positive in a certain sense in this episode that we understood from the beginning of like who he is. Or, you know, when I say we, obviously it's there's segments of the uh, information environment. So others don't necessarily get that. But the very quick reaction uh, by some members of Congress, I think, to just slap this down uh, was good. But it just uh, is an indication of where things might still head. Now, at some level, uh, the government is so confused with the idea that we're the Easter Day promise that we're going to open up uh, businesses and everybody's going to rush to crowded churches uh, to pass on coronavirus on Easter Sunday, according to the president. How do you maintain that at the same time you maintain that you need these emergency powers uh, and things like that if the emergency is almost over? Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, it's a dynamic process. At least we know what's happened at this juncture, but it might uh, rear its head again, uh, given that there's in all likelihood going to be an escalation in uh, hospitalizations, deaths, and things like that. So, okay. Um, Ed, let me go to you, and then I'll uh, then I'll wrap with a question to Seema. Um, you know, I was kind of struck by the fact that the United States Senate has now decided to take a month off in the middle of this crisis. Um, and, uh, you know, they did by, um, passing a $2.2 trillion rescue package, um, that contained some things for average people, although some of it may not make it to those people very soon and a lot for big companies, of course. Um, and, and now they're, now they're out. You know, the day they announced they're leaving, we have the worst unemployment numbers in American history by a factor of five, right? The previous high was 600,000. This is 3.3 million. Um, you know, you're sitting there in Washington, but it seems like the, 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 the government of the United States doesn't want to play. I mean, Trump is pushing it off to the states. It's, it just seems like the government of the United States doesn't doesn't want to get tainted by the, the by this disaster that they have contributed to. Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are a couple of uh, important threads there. I mean, one is, you know, the government of the United States. Well, the president of the United States is clearly preparing, you know, um, uh, preparing for some kind of um, mass scapegoating exercise where where he. Um, um, you know, uh, blames this on liberals. Let's say that let's say that New York State, let's say that Cuomo and Gavin Newsom and others managed to contain this virus, and that there are ten thousand deaths rather than a million deaths, um, and you're able to reopen, um, uh, you're able to reduce the social distancing measures, you know, in a, say by late May. Um, Trump Trump will be citing those car crash statistics, those normal influenza death statistics, and claiming that it was a hoax all along. And he'll be able to point to his um, you know pre mid March um, stance and say, "This is this is what I always said. They shut down the economy because they're liberals, because they overreact, because they're trying to prevent me from being reelected." So there's that strand that he's clearly sort of teeing up. Um, 
And then there's the quite separate one of, of Congress. Um, I have to say, Congress could have done a lot worse. Uh, I mean, I think I think that the the bill the bill isn't as good as what most other Western democracies are providing for people being um, losing their jobs um, or um, you know seeing their businesses fold overnight. You know, Canada, for example, is is has passed a bill giving two thousand dollars a month for the next four months to each family. Um, America's just got a $1,200 check, just a one-off check, and it, as you pointed out, could take weeks to come through. So it's not very good compared to what some other democracies are doing, what most other democracies are doing, um, but it's considerably better than what I might have predicted a week or two ago that a, a, um, a Mitch McConnell-led Senate is capable of doing. Um, it's a small down payment. In my view, this, this is going to go on for, for weeks, um, uh, probably months, and it's going to be rolling. And I'm sure Texas and Florida and the more lax states, the ones that are taking a more Trumpian complacent line on this are going to be hit by it. And so um, this is going to last a long time and Congress is going to need to come back. And I hope when they do, it'll, it'll be an opportunity to pass a better bill. Um, but the real the real game here, in my view, is is Trump's, and it, it it is the most spectacular act of irresponsibility I have seen by um, by an American president in my lifetime, which is a long time. Um, <laughs> the, um, so, Seema, you know, we've had a, a number of experts on this show over the course of the past couple of weeks. We'll continue to to do it. Um, and as someone who's spent ten years on the the board, the advisory board of the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, I'm a little bit reluctant to ask this question and yet nonetheless manage to do so of all the experts that we've got on the show. Um, and that's because it's the question on everybody's mind. We talk about the infodemic. We talk about the misinformation. Uh, we talk about statistics that aren't true. Um, and what everybody wants to know is what, what is true? Not when is this going to be over, but more, how bad is this going to get? How you know how much more severe, or what by what order of magnitude from where we are are we likely to end up? And I'm we're not going to hold you to it, but I just you know what are you you know what are you hearing? What do you think the answer to that question? You know what is it? What should a president right now who said somebody says? How bad is this going to get? What is the answer? Well, I'd say to everyone listening, be wary of any expert who convinces you that they know the answer to that question. Because quite frankly, this is a new virus and none of us is immune to it because we haven't been exposed to it before. So it makes answering that question really difficult, but it doesn't mean that we can't have some approaches to estimating how this might pan out. One of the ways that we do that is, yes, we look at models and those have many issues with them and many flaws and limitations, but we can also just look to where this pandemic has hit hard already. So you think about China um, and the World Health Organization yesterday was saying that you can look at it as having had a really big impact on China for about three months. But the problem then is that even with those measures that China puts into place, as they are slowly starting to lift them now, the cases start to increase again. So one of the things I'm concerned about here in the States is we are the epicenter of the pandemic globally now. We are still seeing cases peak. We haven't reached the apex of that epidemic curve yet, but we need to be thinking further ahead 
about the second wave and maybe even the third wave because we just don't know how they'll hit. And one of my concerns is that the second wave might approach us as flu season kicks in. And so we think about overburdening the healthcare system now, think about it that time of year when there are many people who are also becoming infected with flu, which some years kills up to 80,000 Americans in one flu season. And I make that point because it really makes us realize that now is the time to do the physical distancing aggressively. And at a time when we are losing or already have lost faith and trust in leaders, I think people turn more and more to community, to be honest. And I think it's those conversations that can make a dent in this pandemic, having conversations with family members and loved ones about taking it seriously, not being flippant, not going to coronavirus parties as we're hearing about in Kentucky and other places and doing what's socially responsible to limit the spread or at least try and slow the spread of this disease right now when the government and leadership is failing American people. And I think we'll end up in a situation where, you know, right now we can look back in South Africa to what happened under Thabo and Becky's rule where there was AIDS denialism. There were scientists at Harvard who quantified how many lives were lost in South Africa because of the government's negligence and of that infodemic. We're going to end up in the same situation here. And I'm so worried about looking back on this and thinking, oh, my goodness, we lost thousands maybe of loved ones because of poor governance. And that's something we're going to have to contend with. So true. The war on science is not a political sideshow, and it's not an abstraction. It's something that has real consequences when it is put into applied politics. And that is what we're going to see, and it will have a cost, and it has had a cost. Uh, We will continue to follow this and explore it, and hopefully we will continue to do it Uh, with discussions that were as good uh, and illuminating as this one. I want to thank Dr. Seema Yasmin, who is a public health physician and former officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, for joining us uh, for the first time. Maybe maybe you'll come back again, Seema. You are great. Um, And uh, also, of course, thanking Ryan and Ed, and you'll, you'll hear from them again next week as every week. Uh, we hope you'll come back and, uh, and and join us in our discussions. We've got a number of big special guests coming over the next couple of weeks dealing with this and related issues. And if you want to find out more about that, go to the dsrnetwork.com uh, where um, uh, you'll be able to get the latest podcasts or, or, or this kind of information. And of course, you find us wherever podcasts are distributed. Thank you, Seema. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you, everybody, for listening.